0: Cinema's soft. soft Underbelly. Hi everyone. I'm Eugene Weaver. Welcome to another edition of Cinema's Soft Underbelly, your place to find all things horror related, fantasy related, uh y hard to find little scene. Uh, Crazy Gems in the Rough. Today, however, is going to be a little bit more mainstream in the movies I'm talking about because there's, I'm going to be hitting on a couple of movies that I was hoping to touch on the previous episode when I was talking about sci-fi horror. And uh, those were uh, more comedy. And I had a couple that I wanted to talk about that were very much not comedy. Uh, and so I thought, I'm going to split it up into two episodes, and this is going to be the, uh, the alien... Stuff that's not comical. Um, I actually considered uh, pulling out the uh, the Alien movies, the uh, the Ridley Scott, James Cameron those, but I thought you know that's going to be for another episode. I actually do, and again, I know the, those don't really fit into what I talk about the, the soft underbelly stuff, but um, I, I love them so much, and there's so much good information out there on those movies that at some point I'm going to hit on those. Uh, today, though, I'm going to focus on more serious sci-fi horror, alien-type uh, alien, uh, alien type stuff, and I'm guessing if you're listening to this, you probably already know which one I'm going to be talking about. Uh, that's probably the best type of these movies ever made, uh, and that would be John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. And this movie, I have seen, it's another one of those that I've seen probably... Uh, more than almost any other movie in my life. Reason being, back when uh, I, I, the first time I saw it was on network television, and we had a VCR, and I somehow managed to record it off of TV, and I watched that thing over and over and over. It was almost it was on a it was on a rotation. That and Empire Strikes Back that I had taped off of TV as well, and so it was just constant rotation and the thing and so for years almost like uh, Conan the Barbarian for years i had only watched the television version of this of uh, this movie and back in the day uh, this type of thing was just butchered edited so heavily so much of the stuff was taken out of the movie that it's i don't want to say it's a it, it's a totally different movie but it's it, it's it's so neutered and watered down that it's it's a family friendly movie almost and the thing was no exception this was this was With all the violence and gore and strong language taken out, this is really just a, you know, it's a family-friendly movie almost. And this is the farthest thing from a family-friendly movie. Interesting, though, watching it back all those many years ago and watching it so many times, uh, I kind of got used to that version. And uh, that version actually has some stuff in it to pad the running time because they had to cut so much out of it because of the, the fantastic Rob Boutin special effects uh, that they had to fill it with other stuff. So the beginning, the, uh, there's the introduction of all the characters. Well, in the, in the standard version of this movie, uh, you just get to know them. In the television version of our characters, there's a voiceover explaining what each person does. So it's McCready. He's blah, 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 and this guy, and this guy, and this guy, and it's just slow shots of them doing things. It's setting setting things up, and I kind of liked it. Um, it's obviously not necessary, and it's, again, just it's there to pad the running time, but I, I thought it was interesting. Um, the end also was different, and I guess I'm jumping ahead of myself. I should read just for the You know, 0.1% of you that has not heard of John Carpenter's The Thing. I'm going to read the back of my Blu-ray here real quick, just so uh, you know what the movie's about. Uh, John Carpenter teams uh, Kurt Russell's outstanding performance with incredible visuals to build this chilling version of the classic The Thing. In the winter of 1982, a 12-man research team at a remote Antarctic research station discovers an alien buried in the snow... For over 100,000 years, once unfrozen, the form-changing alien wrecks havoc, creates terror, and becomes one of them. And uh, that really wraps the whole movie up. That's, I mean, especially uh, becomes one of them. Uh, this whole movie deals with assimilation and not being, basically being closed off from civilization. Be- completely being closed off in the middle of Antarctica, Antarctica and this... Thing replicates humans almost exactly, and so it's taking over the 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 crew here at this station. And so there's distrust, and every now and then, if if someone is found out to be the creature, uh, then it rebels and revolts, and the the human body starts to contort and change. And um, amazing that for 1982, and this was probably if it was released in 82. That means it probably was made in 80, 81. The special effects are just phenomenal. And they still hold up today. Uh, I think that's so cool. It's it's amazing. But anyway, to wrap up the whole TV version thing, um, obviously almost all of the gore and special effects were cut from the movie. There was a couple of... uh, snippets here and there that I I remember because i had seen it so many times. And they actually do show the full creature in the end, which surprises me because that's a big, slimy mess. That was actually in the TV version. Um, But then in the very end, um, and this is a spoiler alert because I'm going to kind of spoil the end of the theatrical version and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the TV version because it is interesting. Um, So in the movie, it's uh, down to... Uh, McCready and Childs, uh, the two the two remaining survivors of of uh, the the camp. They've blown up the the entire camp. Thus, the thing is now done. Uh, you still don't I mean the lef, the movie is lef, left at. You're wondering is one of these guys the thing, and are they going to be, you know, either is the one going to kill the other one, and they're going to freeze themselves and wait until spring when the rescue team comes. Uh, or are they both human and they're both screwed because their base camp is in flames and it's freezing cold and all they have is a bottle of booze to share? Um, in the television version, after that scene, uh, we see a dog. And it's running in the distance. And this it's like the next day now. And it's running in the distance and you see smoke billowing, billowing in the background way far in the distance and it's led it, it leads you to believe that um, that... The camp has been burnt, they're dead, but one dog survived, and one dog is on the run. So, I thought that was kind of interesting, and that's the way that I that I grew up with the movie. And there, I think that there is even voiceover at the very end of that as well, a little bit wrapping things up. But I'm not... I that starts to get kind of hazy, but um, anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. So... Uh, the The cast uh, of the movie is fantastic. It's such a good cast. Everybody works so well together. Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley is in it. He's uh, Dr. Blair. Um, Keith David is in it. He's Childs. Uh, I'm just going through the list here. There's a lot of people that aren't necessarily big name actors, uh, but... When you see him, you're like, "Oh, okay, I've seen him in stuff." Um, But, um, and I I hesitate to say that the centerpiece of this movie is the special effects because the acting is so good, the storyline is so good, the music from John Carpenter is just fantastic—one of his best scores ever. And John Carpenter is not only is he known for making great horror, sci-fi, fantasy movies; uh, he's also known for his fantastic scores. They're very minimalist in sound, but they work so good to create this, this complete sense of, of dread, and I love that. Uh, obviously Halloween, and some of the sequels to Halloween, and uh, The Fog, and They Live, In the Mouth of Madness, um, Prince of Darkness... He's got such a huge body of work, and there's most of his movies are just fantastic. Even way back in the day, Assault on Precinct 13 is a solid, uh, solid grindhouse cop movie, and the score is just cool. So, very few of Carpenter's movies I don't like. Um, I, also, of note, if you are going to watch The Thing, um, you may want to watch... John Carpenter has two Masters of Horror episodes. There was a, a TV show on, I believe, Showtime, and it was an hour-long each, roughly an hour-long each, and it was fe- they would feature different directors on each episode of this Masters of Horror, and um, unfortunately, the budgets were fairly small, and the quality of stuff coming out was... I mean, there was a couple of standout episodes. Of course, Carpenter's were... Uh, But there was more bad than good, and so that show did not last. But uh, the reason I bring that up is John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, John Carpenter did two episodes on Masters of Horror. He did Cigarette Burns, which is really, really good. And then he also did Pro-Life. And Pro-Life is, well, the storyline is nothing like The Thing. Uh, But there there are some stop motion, not stop motion, but puppetry type, creatures in there that uh, are very reminiscent of a couple of the gags pulled off in the thing and I I'm watching it I'm like yeah this is a totally paying tribute to his 1982 the thing uh, I do recommend if you uh, if you do get a chance uh, check those check John carpenter's versions out on on the uh, Masters of Horror. Other than Carpenters, I believe that Dario Argento has two episodes, and, and his, are, his are pretty good, too. But as a whole, that series is very, very hit and miss. So uh, Anyway, back to The Thing. Um, there's so much about uh, this movie that could be said. There's a wonderful making of documentary on the Blu-ray it's about forty-five minutes long and it goes into the history of the movie and how it went how it how it happened to like how things were shot, special effects, the things that were not used. There was actually a stop motion um in the very end when we see the huge creature in all its gory glory. Uh there actually was another shot of the creature from a little bit farther away, and I believe it was stop motion, and it was um, it's cool to look at in the special features, but you can totally see why they cut it out because the t- the tighter shot of the thing works so well, and it's so epic and huge and just crazy looking that the the farther away shot it now officially it looks fake and silly and disproportionate to what you just saw. So this in in a movie where there's so much gooey special effects and stuff being thrown at the screen. <clears throat> The less is more approach to the actual creature in the very end worked worked brilliantly. I mean, you only see it for several seconds, but it's enough that you know what it looks like, and it's it's just such a great creature, it's a great great creature. So, um, anyway, um, a couple of notes here, and I think this is kind of cool because I like this actress. The female voice on Macready's computer was performed by John Carpenter's wife, uh, actress uh, Adrienne uh, Barbeau, and she is great. She was in The Fog, Escape from New York, Creep Show. You'll know if you see her, you know exactly who she is. So I thought that was kind of cool. Uh I I I always get a kick out of her. Even my wife jokes about how she talks in John Carpenter's The Fog. Uh and you know, she's imitating that soft voice and you're listening to blah 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 on the radio and so anyway, um uh this is this is interesting here uh because um the uh the the score to this movie is so john carpenter um and i just talked about the score however um he this is the first score that he did not score himself but it's it his fingerprints are all over this movie you wouldn't know it um the film's original choice for composer was jerry goldsmith but he passed and uh, ennio morricone uh composed the The score, and I think that's so cool. It's so John Carpenter, and not Ennio. I mean, he he is—I can pick out his music a mile away, and that does not sound like his music. So, uh, but anyway, um, um, this is kind of interesting here. Keith David wears gloves throughout most of the film, and that's because he had broken one of his hands in a car accident and needed to cover up his cast. So I can just imagine what it was like working in these conditions. I mean, this is a tight, claustrophobic set in Antarctica. Antarctica, and uh, it's been a little while since I've seen the making of. So I'm, uh, I'm not sure uh, as far as the conditions, the actual shooting conditions. Uh, I do. I'm reading here that the illusion of the Antarctic conditions. The interior sets uh, on Los Angeles sound stages were refrigerated down to forty degrees. Uh, while it was well over 100 degrees outside. So, now there you go. But I know that they did go on to location, or they, they, for exterior shots, they were somewhere really, really, really cold. So, um, uh, while discussing the character of McCready, director John Carpenter and actor Kurt Russell discussed having McCready in a former Vietnam chopper, pi- uh, to be a former Vietnam chopper pilot who had felt displaced by... By his service in Vietnam, this ultimately did not make it into the finished film. Um, although it's it's interesting because I I can totally see that I can totally see him being an ex military or ex um, yeah, ex military. It just that just seems like something that he would be that character. Nick Nolte and Jeff Bridges both turned both turned down the role of McCready, and I'm glad they did because this is Kurt Russell's movie. He owns every scene he's in. He is such a badass in this movie. Um, I would dare say that this, and, uh, even though I really like Escape from New York, I would say that The Thing, uh, and uh, Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof are probably my two favorite movies from John, uh, from, uh, Kurt Russell. Um, so, uh, I, I could spend more time on, uh, on the special effects, but you truly have to see them to believe them and appreciate them. There's so much, um, There's so much effects going on in this movie. The budget of the movie was $10 million, and it it flopped upon uh, initial release, which is just insane. Um, I I mean, I kind of understand back in the day, this movie, I I can see where this wouldn't have been quite as well received. But uh, it's such a good movie, and it's almost universally loved. But... um, it didn't do good on its initial release but then home video took off and this movie took off with it so this movie has a huge home video life and it just it's like any fantasy sci-fi horror fan has watched this movie probably numerous times um but 10 million dollar budget which i think for 1982 for a sci- rated sci-fi horror movie i think that's pretty good so um the other thing, oh so this is actually another uh This is a part of John Carpenter's uh, Apocalypse Trilogy. And while it doesn't really have anything to do with the actual apocalypse, it has a very much of a doom feel to it, if that makes sense. Like, uh, dark and gloomy. Prince of Darkness from 1987 was the second one, and then In the Mouth of Madness was his third one. And they're nothing alike, yet they definitely feel connected in that... Uh, the subject matter is very much um anti positive I guess just uh it's heavy uh, so um anyway the uh i again dealing with the special effects Rob Boutine this put him on the bat on the map um and Rob Boutine has done stuff on seven um Rob Boutine did the effects work, i believe for the howling um so anyway it's great special effects artist. And, um, this is his crowning achievement in my opinion. So, um, anyway, there's tons and tons and tons of other stuff that, uh, that I could talk about. Interesting stuff as far as people that were considered for roles in the movie. Lee Van Cleef was considered in the, for the movie Powers Booth. Um, as far as the special effects, uh, there, Stan Winston did have, um, uh, have a little bit to do with this movie because Rob Bottin was suffering from exhaustion at the time and his because of his heavy workload. So Stan Winston actually came in and did some of the effects for our, for Inside the Dog Cage, which is a highlight of the movie. Is when uh, one of the dogs is is the thing and it starts to sprout stuff and go crazy and uh, great scene. And it's still. Just gross. So, uh, anyway, uh, I can't imagine you're not going to like this movie if you're into sci-fi. You don't even have to really be a horror fan, although it probably helps because of how gruesome it is. But um, it's great. And and if you really like the movie, I would advise go on to IMDb and click on the uh, trivia because there is a... There is a ton of trivia on this movie that I didn't even touch on, and I'm going, I'm going way long on this movie, but uh, go on. There. I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting to hear about uh, the making of this movie and what went into it and, and just how well it turned out. So anyway, um, because I talked about the thing, I can't not talk about the remake, reboot, Prequel, uh, not sure what you want to call it, but it's there, and it exists, and it's from 2011, and yes, I do like it. Uh, however, and I'll get into the however here very soon, uh, I'm going to read the back of the Blu-ray real quick. From the producers of Dawn of the Dead comes the chilling prelude to John Carpenter's cult classic film. When paleontologist Kate Lloyd, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who I believe was horribly miscast in this movie... Travels to an isolated outpost in Antarctica for the expedition of a lifetime, she joins an international team that unearths some remarkable discovery. Their elation quickly turns to fear as they realize that their experiment has freed a mysterious being from its frozen prison. Paranoia spreads like an epidemic as a creature that can mimic anything it touches will pit human against human as it tries to survive and flourish in this spine-tingling thriller. Uh, I've watched this movie probably f- uh, I would say almost five times at this point since it came out, which is pretty good for uh, for a newer release. I mean, um, I can't help but enjoy it for what it is, but each time I watch it, I just have to sigh at, and and am disappointed in what it could have been. Um, they actually got a Norwegian director to uh, make the movie, and I'm going to probably butcher his name, but I'm going to try and pronounce it here. Mathis Van... Oh, jeez. You know what? I'm not even going to try. He's a Norwegian guy, and he got a lot of Norwegian cast to be in this movie uh, because this movie takes place on the Norwegian camp, which is the camp that is overrun by The Thing before it hits the American base in Carpenter's version. This movie here, um, it does set everything up, and it does tie the two movies together, sort of, but the more I watch it, the more... Honestly, it almost feels to me like uh, an alien movie that's paying tribute to John Carpenter's The Thing because they do so much wrong, and not necessarily wrong that it doesn't make the movie that the movie doesn't work, but wrong in connection with Carpenter's original version. How the spaceship is discovered is not how it was discovered in the, the Thing, and if this is connected to it, I don't understand why they didn't keep it. Similar now, there is some things that do line up quite well. Um, there has been a lot of of um, a lot of complaining, and I, rightly so, for the the way too big of cast for this movie. This movie is uh, without the end credits; it's probably an hour and forty minutes tops. Um, and for as many characters as there are in this movie. There's simply not enough. There's not enough time for them to breathe and for you to get to know them like you got to know the characters in Carpenter's original. Um, however, in this movie's defense, that is one thing they did get right is in the Carpenter original, they actually did reference how many Norwegians there were on this base, and uh, and so they got the number correct. There were that many people, and so um, that's how they had to do it. But man, this movie could have definitely had some breathing room to get to know the characters because once the plot is set up and the alien is let loose, it's basically like the original The Thing, but it's just you don't know the characters. You don't really care about the characters. Uh, you know, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, I mean, she she's a good actress. I thought that she was miscast, but, you know, I, she's a good actress. Um, everybody does a good enough job, but it's just, it's too bloated. It's there's too many characters for this thing to um for it to work properly. But the special effects, and now I'm going to talk about the special effects. They do work and but with lowered expectations. Coming into the movie, you're already prepared for, okay, this is tying in with John Carpenter's the Thing. Well, John Carpenter's the Thing is known for elaborate fantastic practical effects this movie has elaborate practical effects. Unfortunately, it also has a whole bunch of CGI effects too. And um I they didn't need it. In fact, uh my co-host over on Movie Freaks, he shared a link on uh, Facebook about uh some of the effects artists talking about the the thing reboot here and uh, and they were, they were just saying about some of the things that they didn't um that they, they didn't want to do, but they had to because they the studio was calling for CGI, 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 do this, do this, do this. And it's like, why? Why? I, mean, I, I, it, I get it that you're on a budget and you, you're on a time constraint, but uh, look how Carpenter's version has held up over all these years. I'm pretty sure that the 2011 version will not be held up. Uh, in fact, some of the CGI effects are already dated and silly looking. And... Even the practical effects, if they would have looked kind of silly, they're still practical effects. And they look cool. Uh, so, and that's not just me. Uh, there's, other, it, there's other people out there that think that, too. And uh, not just 13-year-old boys that, you know, ooh, look at that. It's a lady is splitting in half and the, the, everything's flying out of her or whatever. Yeah, I, okay, that's kind of cool. But, yeah, it's also very cgi so, however, in this movie's defense, again, there are some really, really good practical effects. Um, so, I, some notes here on the movie. Um, the producers convinced Universal Studios to allow them to create a prequel to John Carpenter's The Thing instead of a remake, as they felt Carpenter's film was already perfect, so making a remake would be like painting a mustache on the Mona Lisa. <laughs> however, the prequel still has the title of the original film because they couldn't think of a subtitle. For example, The Thing Begins, that sounded, none of them sounded good, so, um, yeah, there's that. Um, uh, I'll tell you, just, again, there's some good stuff, even watching the deleted scenes and the making of stuff, it's really good, but there's a couple deleted scenes that you're like, what? Why would you cut that out of this movie? That, that, that deliberately references a scene that of an important scene in Carpenter's version why would you cut that out because one of the characters just disappears and uh that's the character that in Carpenter's version has his his wrists slit and the blood is frozen and then his throat is slashed open too um well they deleted this scene in the movie why i i i, I know exactly where it would have fit and it would have fit perfect so but anyway whatever that's i'm not the filmmaker i'm just i'm just commenting so um I will say this: the end movie, the end of this movie, playing over the end credits is very, very good. Uh, it it ties in directly into the very beginning of the thing, and it really works good. In fact, it's probably one of the best parts of the movie, with how well it it ties in with the music that they're using uh, and all that. It's 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 cool. So, um, anyway, I thought that was kind of cool. Um, there are a couple other things that um, I'm going to read one thing here. This is a plot point. Uh, the the this film and this is a kind of spoiler. This film may have purposely solved a long-standing mystery in the 1982 film. This film reveals that the thing cannot replicate antibiotic things such as fillings, earrings, clothes, etc. And at a pivotal moment near the end, Kate realizes that Carter's earring is missing, as well as the hole from the piercing revealing him to be the thing. Obviously, there's spoilers here. At the end of the 1982 film, the character Childs still has his earring in his right ear. It can be seen just before he takes a drink from the bottle of uh, scotch. Now, I don't even know if... I mean, obviously, this may have just been something that was made for this movie, for the remake, and had nothing to do with the original. So, uh, I personally think that um, I personally think that the end of Carpenter's version is one of them is, but you don't know which one. I, I don't think that Carpenter even took that into consideration, but maybe he did. Um, I don't know. We'll see. So, no, actually, no, we won't see unless there would be a, a sequel to this thing here. And this thing here didn't do that good. Um, the budget on this movie was, I believe, $38 million, and it brought in $16 million in the States and not a whole lot more elsewhere. So, and it's unfortunate. I mean, it's, it's a good enough movie, but it it's a missed opportunity, and that's just, it's unfortunate. Um, worth a watch, though, and I had to, of course, talk about that movie because I talked about the thing and because they tie in together, but definitely watch them both. Um... It's hard for me to say which one to watch first because the thing is classic, and the I'm I'm not sure what to call it—the remake, reboot, uh, prequel, whatever—is it's good in its own right, but it's it's good not trying to tie it in too much to Carpenter's original. So if you watch them back to back, back I'm guessing that you're going to be sorely disappointed with the with the new version. Um, although there's there's. If you watch it first, you might appreciate some of the things that tie it into Carpenter's version 2. So, I don't know. Give it a shot. Um, both of them are... One of them is a masterpiece and the other one is a very watchable, recently released sci-fi horror movie. So, there you go. I actually had two others on the stack and I just had this feeling that I was going to ramble on and on about the thing. And sure enough, I did. So, uh, that's going to be it for the thing. And that's going to be it for this episode. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to my ramblings on one of my favorite movies of all time. I love the thing. And I, I, it's one of those things that, ha ha ha. It's one of those movies that, uh, that every year uh, when the weather is just right outside, when it's real cold and it's really snowing, I pull out the thing, uh, on Blu-ray because I gotta, I gotta watch it. It's just, it's such a good cold weather movie, and the the feel of it is just very winter, obviously. So anyway, that's it for me. Uh, make sure that you check out the uh, sister show, Movie Freaks. In fact, we just have a brand new episode that's available, so uh, head over to YouTube uh, and give that a watch, a listen. Also on Facebook, if you're friends with us or whatever, it's it's on Facebook as well. And then Cinema Sidekicks. You know where to find them over on iTunes. Uh, You can get a hold of me at eugene-weaver at hotmail.com for any questions or comments or useless trivia that I find interesting. I would love to hear about it. So, uh, Anyway, I appreciate you listening, and uh, until next time.